Amen. Would you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17? I will read out for us verses 1 all the way through 19 to give us some, some context. And Pastor, uh, Pastor Josh will, will be preaching uh, from verses uh, within that, verses 14 to 16. So hear God's word for us this morning. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you, have, you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them, and am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But I know I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, and that they may also may be sanctified in truth. This is God's word. Amen. Let's take our seats. Well, good morning. Let me just begin by thanking uh, Pastor Kurt and uh, his team uh, for the missions festival that we've had over the last couple of weeks. I really think it was just an excellent job, and it requires a lot of work to get all that into place, and so just publicly to thank uh, Pastor Kurt and uh, all uh, the effort and organization and everything that happened to really make that um, such a successful uh, couple of weeks for us to be reminded of the mission of God globally and then also locally, really extraordinary. And so I'm very grateful. And um, 
also, you know, while, while we're thanking people, the Alleluia Chorus was just amazing this morning. Just think the, the age of those children and their singing and really wonderful work. So we have so much, yeah. We're looking this morning at uh, the theme of in the world but not of the world. And uh, my goal uh, today is to teach this passage and to show you how uh, the Reformation, it's Reformation Sunday, to show you how the Reformation really, um, I think, brilliantly um, expressed how to do this, how to live in the world but not of the world. Now, of course, the Reformation wasn't a perfect movement as no movements are, but in this regard... Just brilliant. So I want to, I want to show you uh, that this morning. But as we think about um, the world and how to be in the world but not of the world, it's of course important that we understand what it means, what the word world here in this context means. How do we define it? Otherwise we won't know what we're talking about. And... You know, clearly it doesn't just mean the physical universe. What does Jesus mean when he prays here? Here's Jesus. He's praying for us as his disciples. He's great love and compassion. He's concerned for us. And he knows that he's uh, wanting to um, um, protect us. And he's on the forefront of his mind is uh, this group of his disciples who are going to be opposed, going to be in the world, but he doesn't want them to be of the world. But what does he mean by that? Well, in John's gospel, the world has a particular definition, and this is being established pretty clearly by scholars And in John's gospel, the world means the world in rebellion against God. So we, people, naturally, are in rebellion against God, all of us. And when Jesus and when John's gospel uses the word world, it uses it in that way. The world, all human people, the whole human race in rebellion against God. So the famous text, John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God loves the world. And because he loves the world, he gave his Son to take the punishment that we, in rebellion against God, deserved. And so in John's gospel, when the word world is used, it means the whole human race that's running away from God, that's in rebellion against God. And when we begin to understand that, it's really quite remarkable what Jesus is saying here as he prays for us. He doesn't want to take us out of the world. He wants us still to be close 
to those who are in rebellion against God. How remarkable is that? And yet he doesn't want us to be of the world. He doesn't want us to be in rebellion against God. Well, so how are we to accomplish this? So if you're taking notes, the three parts of the sermon are simply going to be uh, these three. First of all, we're going to look at how this principle, this teaching of the Bible of Jesus here about how to be in the world and not of the world, how that has been interpreted in practice by Christians in recent days and really down through history. And we'll just spend a few moments doing that because we need to understand the, the, the lens that we have in our mind, the way we look at this idea of being in the world but not of the world will be influenced by all these different Christian movements and teachings that have interpreted how to do this in different ways. So that's the first movement. And then the second movement is very simply going to be what Jesus is teaching here about how to be in the world and not of the world. And then uh, third, what does that mean in practice for us today? And there will, as I say, I um, hope to explain how the Reformation in particular on this Reformation Sunday brilliantly expresses how to do that. So first of all, how have, how have Christians tended to try to apply or interpret this principle of being in the world and not of the world? Now, there are all sorts of different movements and identifiers that I could use of different ways, that, uh, groups and uh, within the church at large and different Christians have interpreted this in different ways. But broadly speaking, the church has tended to interpret this in the world but not of the world either at one extreme or the other extreme. Either too much in the world or um, too far away from the world. Uh, to give you uh, one uh, example, uh, I remember one uh, student that I was discipling a few years ago who was struggling with this very issue. How could he live in the world but not of the world? What does that mean? And he was really wrestling with it. And when he got to know me and we started to talk, I asked him you know, to explain to me some of the things that he had been told from his vantage point in the Christian movement, what, how he had been trained about how to do this. And, and one example he gave me was this, that his father had told him that he must have a Christian haircut. Well, this confused me. I wasn't quite sure what a Christian haircut would be. And so I asked him, and he said, well, apparently a Christian haircut is very short at the back and tight around here and not too much on top, which is good for those who are losing the stuff on top. But, well, that's fine. You can have that kind of haircut if you want. But the, a Christian haircut, it, I mean, you know, Jesus... It, we, maybe he, shaved, he cut his hair short like that. Of course, we don't know, but probably he didn't. I mean, some Romans did, but it, it's just the wrong sort of category, you know, a Christian haircut. And yet, you know, this sort of legalism, uh, this kind of one extreme is prevalent and being constant throughout all kinds of different Christian movements, that the way to be in the world and not of the world is to be very far away from anything that might be associated with worldliness. 
So there's that extreme. But then there's the other extreme too. Um, I remember going to one worship service at a church. And in the middle of the worship service, in an attempt, I assume, to sort of connect with people in the world, in the middle of the worship service, they began to sing, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And I assumed they're trying to connect with people who like baseball. It didn't work for me. If they played a song about cricket, that would have helped, perhaps. But, what, what, you know, the, the Bible, it does give us teaching about what we're meant to do when we gather together. And as far as I can tell, it never says, sing, take me out to the ball game. And there's all kinds of things at that end of the, of the spectrum, at the extreme as well. And so, of course, what we learn is that we need to have biblical balance. And to do that, we need to be constantly brought back into line with God's word, which itself is a Reformation principle, that we, we tend to err and stray as Christians. We tend to quickly get away from the, the right path, and we need to be brought back into biblical balance from the teaching of the, of the Bible. Well, so let's do that this morning. What does then, in the second movement, Jesus here teach about being in the world and not of the world? Well, first of all, there's that principle itself, in the world, but not of the world, though he expresses it in an interesting way. It's actually two negatives. Not, uh, not of, uh, verse 14, but also not out. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, verse 15. Not of and not out. Or as we more commonly say, in the world, but not of the world. So what Jesus is saying here is that he doesn't want us to be geographically separated, physically separated, but instead morally and spiritually distinct. We are to be the salt and light of the world, and for the light to shine in the darkness, it needs to be present where there is darkness. Otherwise, it's just shining where there's more light. And for the salt to have an impact on the world around, it needs to be connected to that world, to have a preservative influence, a salty influence. It needs to be in, not spatially separated, physically, geographically, but morally distinct, spiritually Distinct. But then uh, uh, Jesus uh, goes on with um, other uh, uh, teaching here. And he says, not only in but not of, but also there is the inevit- what, I, what I call the inevitability of opposition. He says, the world will hate them. The world does hate them. The world has hated them, verse 14. There's an inevitability of opposition. Now, obviously, we don't go seeking that. We don't want it. We don't hope for it. We don't behave in a way that's going to aggravate people to hate us. But if we're in the world but not of the world, there is an inevitability of opposition, maybe not always verbally expressed. 
mercifully, not always physically, expressed with an attack. Though that does happen, of course. We'll be praying for the persecuted church. But always inside, somewhere, the world, because it's in rebellion against God, and because we're not in rebellion against God, because God has reached out to us in mercy, there's an inevitability of opposition. And if that's not there, if a church or an individual Christian experiences no opposition from the world around, well, it's a diagnostic that they've got this biblical balance wrong. They're too in the world in their desire to um, reach those in rebellion against God. They themselves have just gone in rebellion against God too, which of course is not reaching them, it's just joining them. In their desire to fish for fish, they've got so close to the fish, they've become fish. But for the real Christian, for the church living in biblical balance, there is an inevitability of opposition. But then Jesus also teaches that the Father protects us. He prays for the protecting power of the Father. And he talks about this in verse 15. Father, protect them. You, talking to the Father God, keep them from the evil one. Protect them from the evil one. There is a spiritual battle. The devil is real. Satan does exist. We are in a spiritual war. He does attack Christians and churches. How does he do that? Through temptation. In many different ways. Broadly speaking, in two categories. He either elevates us. He either tells us how great you are, how wonderful you are, how excellent you are, how good you are in every way. He tries to lift us up with pride that we would think about how wonderful we are. Or he pushes us down. You're useless. You're terrible. You're no good. How awful you are. How bad you are. Either way is fine because in either case we're thinking about ourselves. And of course God wants us thinking about him and how much he loves us and how much he has for us to do for him, the purpose he has for us. And God protects us. Jesus prays that the Father God would, and his prayer is answered. How does God protect us? He protects, he protects us through providence, through the provision of, of friends and family and, and a church. And you open your eyes, you look around, and you see all that God has done for you. It's God's provision, it's his protection. God also protects us through faithful shepherds, pastors, Christian leaders, elders, missionaries, faithful shepherds who are called by God to teach God's word and to protect the flock, to even if necessary give their lives for the sheep. It's one of the means that God has to protect you, the church. 
And of course, ultimately, God the Father protects you through the gospel. As Paul teaches in his letter to the Ephesians, you put on the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the, the sword of the Spirit, and the feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The gospel, you tell the gospel to yourself, you preach the good news to yourself, and you stand firm, and the devil will flee. It's all the protecting power of God the Father, the almighty power of God. You stand in the power of his might. But then Jesus also teaches us here about how to be in the world, but not all of the world, and we'll look at this more next week, the, how, the sanctification. So how do we become not of the world, not become like the world when we're in the world? He says, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification is the process by which we become more like Jesus. Justification is how God declares to us that we are right. We receive it through faith. It happens. It's an act. We're justified. It's done. Sanctification is a process by which we gradually become more like Jesus, and it happens throughout our whole lives. And the way that we're sanctified is through the truth, and his word is truth. In other words, the way to become more like Jesus and not become of the world, even though you are in the world, is to receive from God Bible teaching to listen to sermons in the living body of Christ where his spirit is and he speaks to you, that you might be gradually sanctified. And then Jesus also uh, talks here about, in this, his teaching about how not to be in the world but not of the world, about the, the missional purpose of the Christian life. He says... Father, as you have sent me into the world, verse 18, so I have sent them into the world. If you're a Christian, you have been sent into the world. Where you are right now, God has put you, and you have a mission. You are sent. The word mission means sent. You are sent there. And it's a purpose he has for you. What is that purpose? The purpose is to make disciples of all nations. Your purpose, Christian, the reason why he hasn't taken you out of the world, the reason why you're not yet in glory in heaven, the purpose that you have is to disciple your children, to encourage your spouse, to look after your parents, to tell your neighbors about Jesus, to disciple a younger Christian, to be discipled by an older Christian, to make disciples of all nations. You have a mission purpose. And so all this is the biblical balance that Jesus here teaches about what it means to be in the world, um, but not of the world. Well, you say, oh, that's all very well, but how do I, what does that mean for us today? How do we actually do that today? So this is the third section of the sermon, what it means for us in practice today? Well, first of all, it means that you need to know and love your neighbor. If you're going to be in the world but not of the world, you actually need to know who your neighbor is. You know, the one you live next to on your street. 
the person you work with. Not just drive up into the, uh, into the garage when you go home and the, the automatic garage goes up and your car goes in and the garage door goes down and you just never even know who you live next to. You need to know and love your neighbor. And at work, too, to know the names of those you work for. Take them out for a coffee. You need to know and love your neighbor. If you're to be in the world but not of the world, you need to actually be in the world to know and love your neighbor. But then also it means, and this is a Reformation principle, as well as an ancient church principle, to use what they called Egypt's gold, Egypt, the country, Egypt's gold. So it goes back to the time of Exodus when God took his people out of Egypt and they took with them and were given the great riches of Egypt, Egypt's gold. And the ancient church, the reformers, used this as principle to say, look, we can use the things of the world, but we're not going to be controlled by them. Yeah, there are ideas in Plato and Aristotle that we can use. But that doesn't mean we have to become pagans like they were. Let me give you um, one more practical example of how this sometimes works. I was a missionary in a couple different countries for a little period of time. And one of those countries was a Muslim country where to drink alcohol of any kind whatsoever was associated with debauchery. And so our, our... policy in that country was never to touch a drop of alcohol. We were going to be in the world, but not of the world, and that's what it meant there. Another country I worked in was a a nominally Christian country. And in that country, thousands of years before we got there, they had first heard the gospel through a missionary who walked through the land holding up a cross The cross made of vine branches woven together that they called the cross of wine. And in that country, a a glass of wine was deeply associated with the truth of the gospel. While, of course, we never, never were drunk, or the Bible is very clear about drunkenness. In that context, to have a glass of wine and share Christ with someone was was being in the world but not of the world. Biblical balance. Constantly brought back into line by the truth of God's word. A reformation principle using Egypt's gold. But they also had a strategy, what it means for us today, in this Reformation Sunday. The Reformation strategy had as its motto, out of darkness light. Or in Latin, post-tenebras lux. That phrase was actually on the coins in Geneva where Calvin was. After darkness, light. They're going to be light in the world. After darkness, light. And they had three strategies. The first was an articulation and defense of the gospel. It was proclaimed, the proclaiming the gospel that we have as our Motto here as a church. That's that's why we're articulating and defending the gospel. Defending the gospel against false teaching, which sometimes we must do. We must articulate and defend the gospel. But then they also wanted to engage with culture. 
And so they had as their other, the, the, the second of these three tenets of the Reformation, to win the battle of the mind in the culture. In other words, they wanted to show that Christianity was true. How we need to do that too. Not in an overly intellectual kind of way, but to, to show the world around that actually Christianity is credible, that it's true. Well, we believe it because it's true. And then the third uh, tenant was the training and sending of pastors and uh, missionaries which is why we have such a mission program and why we have pastors we bring in to train and then send out. The training and sending of missionaries, that brilliant Reformation strategy that articulated how to be in the world but not of the world. I commend it to us as a church. And you say, what does that mean for me most practically? Well, here is what it means for really all of us, I think, most practically. I encourage you, as you think through how to be in the world but not of the world, in Wheaton or Glen Ellen or Carroll Stream or Chicago land, wherever you come from, to conduct an inventory, an analysis of how you use your time and your money. We pastors were talking just the other week about what a challenge it is for all of us uh, what, uh, to use our time in a way that expresses in the world but not of the world. You know, there are people in this congregation who fly out on a plane on Monday morning and come back home Friday afternoon. There are people in this congregation with children and all sorts of different sports programs and all the rest of the thing. How do, you, how do we use, I feel the pressure too, how do we use our time for the mission of God, for discipling all nations? Are, are we using our time that way? Or are we just using it exactly the same way as the world does? Is it more important that your child does really well at soccer and gets a scholarship to get into university or that your child loves Jesus and gets into heaven? And, and which of those two is your time representing? An inventory of your time, an inventory of your money. Of course, money is a sensitive subject at any time. Um, and is hard for, uh, for all of us. And there have been many rich uh, Christians who have been much used by God. Rich people who follow God. Abraham, perhaps the richest man of his day. Phoebe in the New Testament was a patron of the church in Corinth. A very rich woman. But how do we use our money in a way that represents in the world but not of the world? A biblical balance, the Reformation strategy, those three tenets. How do we do it? Let me just tell you one story. I was told the other day of a man who decided that he was going to be a multi, multi-millionaire so that he could give 10% of his money to the work of God. 
And indeed, he did become a multi-multi-millionaire. And then a few friends sat down with him and said to him, you've got it wrong. God doesn't own 10%. He owns the whole thing. And so through a process of time, he... And now, now there's a group of friends who sit down together and they actually have conversations about how much they're earning and how much they're giving. And they're actually disclosed to each other what salary they have decided to pay themselves. And, and, the, and others will say, no, that's, that's too much. You don't need that much. In the world, but not of the world. Are we using our time and our money in a way that is morally and spiritually indistinguishable from the way that the people around us use it? Or are we using our time and our money in a way that represents the mission of God for you and you? And so Jesus is deeply concerned for all of us. It's a hard thing to be in the world but not of the world, to run against the stream of culture or around And he prays for us. He loves us. He wants us to be protected. And we need his help and his prayers and his power. And so join with me in prayer as we close. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you that You do protect us. And though the world with devils filled, yet your word abideth. That you have as the apple of your eye, the focal point of your attention, us, your people. And we ask you to protect us. We ask, Lord, that you renew within us a distinct character, different from those around. That you renew within us a passionate desire to fulfill the sending purpose which you have for us as individual Christians and as a church. And for all this, Lord, we are so grateful that you prayed for us and indeed are interceding for us, your people. We ask for your help and your power that the mighty strength of God will protect us as we serve you in this world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.